Yes, yeah, so to get started, you can go ahead and give a brief intro to yourself. Yeah, uh, my name's George. Um, I'm past, I guess, like three years or so. I've been really interested in political economy of um, imperialism and unequal development um, around the world and uh, theory of unequal exchange and so on. And I've uh, written some articles about this. I've got like a Discord group that we read sort of different texts that are related to this. Um, and yeah, and I've sort of combined this, I guess, with trying to help out with like political organizing in the country where I've been living, where like my family lives, which is Ukraine. Um, and it's really helped me, I guess, to understand lots of political questions there and yeah. Yeah, so just to jump right into it, um, I guess we can give a brief explanation of the concept uh, for anybody who may be unfamiliar with it. And then from there, we can kind of explain it further, go into more of the uh, suppositions of it. And then from there, we can talk about like the political implications of it, if you want to do it that way. So, um... Like sort of the general overview, I guess, of this concept of unequal exchange. Yeah, that's what we're going with. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I guess it was it really emerged out of the work of this economist Augury Emmanuel, um, and um, I guess like it's thinking about this concept. It's kind of this kind of funny irony. At, well, I don't know irony, but basically, I mean, this this guy is Augury Emmanuel, right? And there's also Emmanuel Wallerstein who's a really famous, you know, world systems theory, uh, world system analysis theorist. He also uses this concept, unequal exchange. In fact, it's a concept that's used by very many people. Um, the problem is that often this concept either isn't defined or has totally different meaning to what Algeria Manual wrote about. Um, and for me, like, I've always found Algeria Manual's works, like, I guess probably by far, like, the most... Um, it's like, I don't know how to put it. I mean, rigorous and stimulating, but most of all rigorous. Like he actually really tries to define what he's talking about. And for instance, Wallerstein, he's got some really interesting historical analysis, but he, he doesn't, like his big problem is he doesn't really define what he means by unequal exchange, which, get, which gets it really confusing. So unequal exchange in a manual, um, this is a concept basically that he tries to explain for him this central phenomenon of, 20th century world and 21st century world, which is where you have like a minority of nations, minority of the world global population, so like which are centered in these nations, these nation states that have much higher wage levels uh, than every other country. And then he has this concept of unequal exchange, which is, I think it's best understood as a mechanism through which this division is reproduced, basically. Um, we can go into this further. Uh, but that that that's basically the the overview of it yeah but i guess there's um what's often left out i suppose is that for emmanuel it was for him it was also just as important that this reproduction of this low wage situation the low wages themselves have economic effects on the broader the the, the model of development the form of development that this uh, capitalist society takes as opposed to like a, a high wage economy so yeah yeah so from there i think it would be cool to go more into the uh, suppositions of the theory itself so uh discussing like more of 
of the justification he uses to prove mm. this idea. Um, I was reading, I've been reading a little bit about it over the past couple of weeks. And uh, some of the concepts that I think are, are most fascinating are, uh, you know, talking about the, the equalization of profit or the profit mm. equilibrium. Um, and then kind of the structural differences between uh, as you're talking about high wages, like when wages go in an imperialist nation uh, versus wages being held down in, 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 in colonized nations or nations in the global south, how that relates to uh, the, the core of the unequal exchange, which is where value is going and value being uh, still being extracted to the global north. So I, I'm still new to the idea, but I'd love to learn like more about the suppositions that he uses to justify this idea. Yeah, so like the unequal exchange model um, that Emmanuel uses, it can actually be uh, expressed in a really quite simple way. So basically the unequal exchange model, it can be expressed with very, in, using various different, I guess, conceptual, uh, conceptual systems, but the base um, suppositions are pretty simple. It's just you have this, a competitive market economy. And in a competitive market economy, it's run by the economic agents of capitalists that are moving towards sectors with higher profits. That's what they're looking for. And this is not something unique to Emmanuel or to Marx. You know, this is in Ricardo and Smith and in modern economists as well. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a very, it's just, it's a shared supposition that capitalists go towards higher, higher profit sectors and then they, you know, invest more in these sectors. This will increase the prices. Uh, sorry, decrease the prices of these sectors because there's more and more supply of these sectors. And then in turn, this will lower the profit rate in these sectors because they've become so popular. And then the less popular sectors, uh, their profit rate will may uh, maybe increase a little bit because other capitalists have vacated these sectors. And so you have this kind of chaotic equaliz uh, equalization of, of profits. It's not obviously. It's not that all profits are the same. Uh, there's different ways to talk about this. It, it's always a chaotic process, basically. Um, but the idea is, though, is that you don't have, uh, in reality, in, in the real capitalist world, you have rates of profit that are sort of circulating around the same rate of profit, right? Um, and and then basically, Emmanuel Emmanuel's uh, approach is he critiques the various different theories of how prices are set on the international market, uh, which often to do with, you know, you often have this very common idea that, you know, raw material exports have for some reason have this like worse demand structure and they get lower prices or something else. And he critiques all this and he says, look, when we have price formation, it's kind of very like class, uh, like a cl classical economist sort of perspective, prices are formed on the basis of costs costs, the money costs of your inputs, of, you know, your labor inputs and your, you know, the raw materials you bought and the cost of your you know, machinery and so on. The costs of all of these aspects of the production process, plus the average rate of profit, right? And, uh, and then from this, you know, it's fairly, it's fairly clear that if you have a situation where some countries have much, much lower wage costs, um, then something produced in these countries, if it's the same rate of profit in this low wage countries in the high wage country, they'll have lower selling prices as well. Uh, now, this is 
this is where I guess the conceptually kind of complicated thing comes up where it's like lower prices compared to what, right? Um, and you know, and you have lots of formulations of unequal exchange, which I kind of I kind of dislike where it's this kind of idea. This is how Emmanuel formulated it at the beginning, but then he moved away from this model, this idea of like a value transfer or something, uh, which I think often kind of gets people really confused. It gets really confusing. Uh, you know, because then it's kind of an idea like, you know, this kind of this formulation where it's like unequal exchange is when the poor countries drain value to the global north. Um, and this kind of gets confused because then you sort of, you're talking about value which has no monetary value, right? Uh, which is the point of unequal exchange because, you know, but then it's kind of a question, well, how, do, why would this matter in a capitalist economy when, your, you know, everything depends on the money you have, right? If, you know, in development, and development means, you know, buying new fixed capital, investing this capital, right? And constructing new factories, it depends on money. So why would it matter if you have these, you know, this, uh, this invisible value that's lead? But basically the, the, the way I like to conceive of unequal exchange, which is developed by this pretty great, like uh, modern, I guess like, economist, uh, he, he's a commentator on Emmanuel's work, basically, and you can find his work online called uh, Brolin. And he, he writes really clear. I mean, there's, there's some parts of Emmanuel that sort of say this clearly, but you got to think of unequal exchange as it's unequal in the sense it's a comparison between the reality that we have, the real situation of, of prices of production, which are formed by, you know, low-wage countries, higher-wage countries, so on, comparison between this and a hypothetical situation, a hypothetical situation where we'd have equal wage levels everywhere, right? And then the unequal exchange is the difference in prices between this real situation and the hypothetical situation. And I think that's the best, that's like the easiest way to explain it, right? Um, and then based on this, I guess the other big supposition that Emmanuel has and his big critique of other theories is that wage levels, they don't correspond to some kind of, you know, greater productivity uh, or something else of the workers themselves, right? This is this common idea that, you know, you have higher wages because you're more productive or something. So Emmanuel says, no, it's kind of a, it's, it's, it's an old school, really like Marxist argument. That's how Emmanuel justifies it, uh, which is that, you know, in capitalism, wages aren't determined by how productive you are. Uh, it's determined by capitalists like, uh, competing to cut costs and they try to lower wages. And if you have higher productivity, and this was, you know, Marx was going off of his observations in uh, 19th century, early 19th, the first half of the 19th century in England, when there were these huge, like incredible increases in productivity, the biggest basically, you know, in history, right? And then, but at the same time, workers' real wages were declining because quite simply, because um, if high, you have higher productivity uh, machinery, and then this means you need less workers. They get laid off. There's less demand for labor and their wages correspondingly decrease. Um, so yeah, that's, those are the suppositions of unequal exchange. Um, and then I guess you, 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 I mean, I might be forget, but your other question, because I think this kind of segues into it. I think it's really important to talk about this now is I guess um, how unequal exchange reproduces these low wages, right? Yeah. Um, so the way the way I look at it, and uh, Brolin also has some really great analysis of this, and uh, there's some of this in some of Emmanuel's later work as well, is that you need to think about the role of unequal exchange in reproducing low wages. Um, it's it's in fact it's not so much about reproducing low wages as in 
being the condition of possibility for wage increases in some countries, right? Because Manuel's, Manuel's perspective, which I find really, really thought-provoking, and it's very, like, I guess, I suppose, provocative and totally different from my perspectives, is that it's not underdevelopment, which is unique, which is like, you know, because you often have this idea in poor countries, like I've often seen this where it's like, oh my God, our country is so like messed up. It's so not normal. You know, we, why aren't we a normal country like Germany, right? <laughs> and Emmanuel's position is like, well, it's actually the countries like Germany or America that are unique. They cause them overdeveloped, right? And then what are the conditions for this? Because, you know, if you look at capitalism's history, it's actually, I mean, the normal, the norm is you know, really high unemployment. If you look at like, you know, 16th, 17th century, 18th century, 19th century in Europe, it's you know, huge unemployment, like 40% unemployment, huge informal in, in unemployment, um, and you know, stagnating or decreasing real wages. So how, how do you have this kind of historically unprecedented phenomenon, which is really a phenomenon of the post-war era, post-World War II, to an extent beginning around World War I, of these in constantly increasing real wages in some countries. So that's kind of the task of Emmanuel's work, I suppose, is trying to explain this historical phenomenon, like, well, how did this happen? Um, and basically, Emmanuel's idea is that you have to think about unequal exchange as this condition for these wage increases. So you can think about it really simply, where it's like, if you're in a country, a capitalist country, and then wages start increasing, fundamentally, your problem becomes is that then, uh, if you don't change anything about your production process, your products will obviously become uncompetitive on the world market, right? Because the, your, your costs have increased, either you reduce the profit or at a certain point, there'll be no more profit that's left, right? And you'll just have to leave the market. So how do you solve this? Because if, if this happens, if your, if your companies go bankrupt, then obviously there'll be no more jobs left for your workers. And then, you know, wages will obviously have to decrease again, right? So how do you solve this problem? The idea is, is that then you begin importing more and more cheapened products from overseas, right? From low wage countries. And this way um, you're able to compensate the potential decrease in the, in the rate of profit and so on due to wage increases by importing goods from low wage countries. And it's like really, you know, you can really see this, especially if you look at, there's been lots of sort of statistics done about uh, the increase, it was only after World War II when you had this whole social democratic sort of consensus in the, in the West and in the USA, when wages started increasing constantly, you get this huge dependence on resources from, uh, you know, from the rest of the world, right? uh, where before that they actually, Europe was you know, self-sufficient really throughout most of its industrialization on its own, like iron and steel and so on. Uh, but it's when the wages start increasing that they really need to start getting it from overseas. And, and then you see it more and more today, right? Where you're just getting more and more stuff being produced, totally, not, not even just raw materials, but everything's being produced in, in low-wage countries. Um, so then it becomes the buying, you know, I guess artificially, because right, we're thinking about unequal exchange, this comparison between the reality and the hypothetical, artificially cheap and stuff from overseas, it's the, it's the condition of possibility for wage increases at the center. And then you can obviously see how it's, it's not possible for wages to increase everywhere um, because then you'd have this problem of it, it would cut into the rate of profit. And then you'd have this, you know, which is what economists, I guess, normally assume is that, you know, wage, um, and what Marx assumed, right? If you have wage increases, it'll just make capitalists go out of, go out of, um, go out of business. Right? So if that answers your questions, I might have missed, I think I missed some. But, yeah. No, that was a very, very good explanation uh, to begin with. I'm, I'm curious to go a little bit more in depth 
as you're saying of the perhaps like rupture in Emmanuel's own thought with respect to the idea of unequal exchange. So I was reading a bit about his idea of unequal exchange in the broad sense and then unequal exchange in the strict sense and involving uh, two different types of non-equivalence and very much related to like the organic composition of capital as an important feature when it comes to uh, the distinction of, of high wage levels and low wage levels. And then he talks a little bit more about um, the equilibrium rates of profit uh, and, and kind of how I think people get confused about the idea of value literally being transferred from like the global south to the global north in this like kind of stereotypical extraction model. Whereas I think, as you're saying, he's arguing that it's something more similar to, uh, it's like more important to think about the equilibrium uh, of the rate of profit and wages um, and kind of the, how that's related and affected by the organic composition of capital being higher in the global north than it is in the global south. So can you talk more about just how important those concepts are for Emmanuel in formulating the unequal exchange in the strict sense, which is what I think is like the later and pro probably the more concise definition of an equal exchange for him in, imp in imperialist trade, that is. So like with Emmanuel, uh, just a word about like the shift in Emmanuel's thought, it's not really so much in terms of the concepts, like his actual concepts remain the same throughout his, um, throughout his work. Uh, he develops some other stuff that he didn't really focus on so much in his later work, but his concepts of, I guess, unequal exchange, I, I think basically remain the same. Uh, it's just that in the, at, uh, in his earlier work, he uses more of, I guess, like a classic sort of Marxist perspective. In his later work, he uses more of a Sraffian perspective, just the, the economist Piero Sraffa. Um, Partly because I mean, he was just kind of, I think he was kind of tired of having to argue with Marxists. They were like, you know, really getting getting annoyed at him that he was sort of, you know, disrespecting, you know, X citation or whatever. So, uh, but also because I think he found it a sort of a powerful model to uh, explain what he was getting at. But uh, the, the concepts, and you asked about the, in the strict sense and the narrow sense, this is a distinction he develops in um, uh, the book Unequal Exchange. It's kind of a response to, because, you know, the, the, the classic sort of Marxist way to look at unequal exchange, and this is, you know, and, and Marx talks about this in Capital Volume 3, he kind of, he calls this kind of an unequal exchange. Uh, and then after this, basically most, and to this day, most Marxists do this, where they're talking about differences in organic composition of capital. Organic composition of capital is like the proportion of costs of uh, fixed capital, machinery, means of production, compared to the general cost of the capital invested, right, which is including wages and so on. Um, and, you know, since we have equalization of rates of profit, um, this means that if you have like a capital, I mean, it's, it's easier to look at this like just in the, the maths examples. It's, it's pretty simple. It's not but basically, I mean, if you didn't have equalization of rates of profit and you assumed an equal rate of exploitation, um, the higher organic composition capitals would get lower rates of profit, basically. Uh, because since for Marx, you know, la labor produces the value, the new living labor, the wage labor produces the value. And since the proportion of wage labor in the total capital is lower in the high organic composition, but the rate of profit is the same, 
this means they'll get a lower rate of profit if there was no equalization. Oh my God. So uh, yeah, if there's no equalization of the rate of profit, but it's the same rate of uh, exploitation. Um, in reality, it's the same rate of profit, um, which means that the, um, yeah, because well, if you didn't have the same rate of profit, this would result in this kind of you know, totally irrational situation where capitalists wouldn't invest in high organic composition sectors, right? And that there'd be no technological innovation and so on and so on. Um, and then Emmanuel's thing is basically to, uh, his idea about the dip and then unequal exchange in the narrow sense is what Emmanuel writes about basically, where you have uh, lower wage levels resulting in lower prices of production. Yeah. Um, and unequal exchange in the, in, the, in the broad sense with these different organic compositions and it means that the prices of production don't correspond to the, the values in the, in the Marxist sense, uh, where the values would, uh, you know, for them to correspond, there would have to be different rates of profit, basically, which correspond to the amounts of labor contained in these things, right? Um, and generally, Marxists try to explain some kind of way in which uh, organic composition, unequal exchange, so in the broad sense, this somehow leads to unequal development uh, around poor countries. Um, Emmanuel critiques this. He says this is not really the best way to look at things. Um, I mean, there's, there's various sort of different reasons why. I mean, like, I mean, just one example is that, uh, is that, you know, mining sectors, they often have like very, very high organic compositions and some sort of stuff like that. So, because uh, I mean, the idea of the, unequal exchange, the broad sense sort of exploitation model is that then poor countries always have low organic compositions and which means they lose value to the high organic composition uh, capitals. But Emmanuel, Emmanuel's broader critique of this is that, look, uh, this so-called unequal exchange in the broad sense, this is economically rational. If we didn't have this, there'd be no investment in high technologically, uh, tech, like, you know, high tech sectors, basically. Um, unequal exchange in a narrow sense is economically irrational because we're basically what, what's happening here is that some economies develop more rapidly because they consume more. That's basically the and then other and then the majority of other economies don't and they're forced to remain at a low level. Um, and there's not really and this is and the, the, the big difference really also is that when you think about unequal exchange in a narrow sense, uh, this is divided by nations and it's a real it's, it's a real like national division right where you have uh it's in the interests of the capitalists well mainly the workers of one nation and to the detriment of workers of other nations capital uh unequal change in the broad sense it's just kind of hard to conceptually tie this to um the um the real differences developer we see today uh, and often it just becomes more kind of a theoretical exercise. And then also there's the whole question of like, what do you mean by these value transfers, right? Like, why would this be bad? Why would it be bad that one capital loses value in this like absolute kind of Marxist sense to another capital? Like a capitalist don't care about that, right? So um, that's, I guess, kind of Emmanuel's critique of this. Um, yeah. And if you look at most critiques of Emmanuel, they usually just refer to like some kind of this whole organic composition model. Uh, instead of the wage model, the wage difference model, because the wage difference model is politically unacceptable to many people because it implies this interest uh, on the behalf of the working class of the rich countries in exploitation of other countries. Yeah.
Yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit about that too, because I think that's the the part that gets a lot of people. Um, so we we have this uh, the communist working group. Um, I believe that's the name of it. The let me just check if that's the correct name. Uh, yeah, the communist working group on equal exchange and the prospects of socialism. Um, that coming out of uh, Denmark, uh, coming out of Copenhagen, and they write pretty much, I guess, like a political manifesto coming out of their interpretation of a lot of Emmanuel's uh, theories. And they talk about, like Emmanuel has a quote, Sweden can only live the way Sweden does and the US can only live the way the US does uh, because there are 2 billion inhabitants of the third world that, that simply cannot. Um, and he also, they talk frequently in the book about how, uh, if, it, you know, if we were to redistribute all, all wealth, uh, if we were to expropriate the entire capitalist class in the way, in the interpretation of this theory, it still would not necessarily equalize the working class of uh, the global north at, in comparison to the global south. So that's kind of what I'm curious about next is the political implications of the theory. Um, once there's an understanding of some level of intrinsic, uh, this being built in basically to nations with imperialist international trade, and it's kind of focused on like the trade structure that what are the political implications for workers in the global north? In, and I think what it's kind of suggesting is to say they don't have a lot of room to work with when it comes to not having their their uh, wages, you know, and the fact of their wages being in an imperialist nation that has this setup of, of an equal exchange built into trade. They don't have a lot of room to work in in order to equalize that and to uh, really have, like, I think the most drastic implication of it, of course, has been the suggestion that workers in the global north and workers in the global south basically have diverging interests uh, and that workers in the global north have an interest in, in keeping this structure the way it is because they benefit from it. And kind of also how that's been related to the idea of the labor aristocracy developing. So I'm really curious about that, like the political implications of, of this theory and, and how it's been received by some, uh, some on the left and very much denied by others on the left in order to kind of have this conversation about international solidarity or lack thereof uh, in the world. Yeah. Um... Like, I mean, I guess, I mean, one thing also to keep in mind is that Emmanuel himself, um, I mean, he wrote in French, but he wasn't a French guy. He was, he was Greek himself. He lived, mo he lived mo most of his, like, uh, I mean, most of his life, really, he lived in the Congo. Yeah. He was like, uh, like a small trader, basically, in the Congo. Right. Um, and, uh, and he was also involved politically in the Congo. Uh, all kinds of, like, weird stories about him with huh. the... Uh, yeah, yeah. With it's, the, in the, uh, it's a lot of that in the in the Berlin book. He talks a little bit about that. And bias. Yeah, book. great. Oh yeah, I read the Berlin book's amazing. Yeah, but yeah, and he he had involvement. I mean, I I, mean, I, forgot, I forgot the name, but uh, the whole like the the revolution in Congo. Mm -hmm. uh, I've forgotten the name of the guy. My mind's going blank. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I mean, it's not like not very like very closely, but uh, and then you know, I mean, Emmanuel was also he was involved in the Greek sort of. Uh, revolutionary uprising in 1943 
in the with the Greek army in North Africa, which was then kind of like put down, didn't fail, and he failed, and he was like court-martialed to death, and so on and so on. He had a pretty interesting life, uh, but he was also like his perspective wasn't so much like you know how how is this going to affect our view of the first world. I mean, it it did have this as well, but he was someone who was really interested in helping, I guess, you know, I mean, the majority of the world's population, right, which is like, you know, often called like third world or, or whatever, and uh, low wage, basically. And um, that that's how I look at it, really. I mean, people often ask me, I mean, for me as well, I found it really, I found his work really important, like living, trying to, I guess, politically think through, like in Ukraine, where you have this huge, like, Euro fetishism, this whole, like, the whole political everything is determined by this idea that you know we need to become like germany and everything germany tells us or whatever the west is good for us and so on and the more free trade with europe the better and so on um and also um, even among like ice left-wing activists this kind of like fetishization of europe and uh and so that's why i was really attracted to his work because I found it like a good critique of these ideas of like the, re and also kind of it was like a political, like, I mean, an economic program, really, you know, uh, that that's what I found in it, uh, like a positive political program of like, look, we need to really be trading, you know, trading less really with these rich countries that it's in their interest to exploit this country. This is what happens in reality. It's not just some accident that they have these really unfair trading agreements with Ukraine. This is like in their interest. Uh, and we need to focus more on, I mean, Emmanuel's work, ultimately, it's, uh, he always argues for the superiority of a planned economy for low-wage nations. And that his basically idea, because we, we've been talking about this so much, but his idea is not, it's not just about this unequal exchange, but also that low wages in a capitalist economy, it just leads to stagnation, basically. Because you have low wages, there's a, lot, there's a very small consumer market, and capitalists would rather just go to the high-wage countries where there's lots of, lots of consumers, uh, it's clo they're closer to the consumers, and so on. Um, so then his idea, which is also very, really different from most modern, you know, most other Marxist theories of, I guess, underdevelopment. His idea is just like the big problem of the, I guess, the third world is that there's just this investment stagnation. Nothing happens. Uh, it's huge unemployment, right? Everyone just has to emigrate. I mean, like him, he had to emigrate from, from Greece because there's no work there. Um, and then in, these, in this situation, a planned economy is really the only way to get the productive forces going, I guess you could say, and give people work. Uh, develop what needs to be developed, you know, and so on, so on. Uh, so that's what, what that's what I found really compelling about Emmanuel, basically. Um, about like its implications for the Western working class, I, you know, I I used to be like also like yeah, like Western working class, bunch of parasites. I, I lived in Australia for a while and like sort of <laughs> uh, left its imprint on me. Um, but um, yeah, look, I mean, I, I think it's like productive to be looking for solidarity with you know Western working class. Um, I just think that, you know, as an activist living in you know, a poor country, it's better to look, I think, you know, you, you gotta, you know, see the whole thing, like who are enemies, who are friends. And I think really like there's, it's, it's better to be looking for friends among like, you know, other countries in you know, North Africa, you know, Algeria, you know, Romania, whatever, Moldova, compared to, you know, like hoping for the great white, you know, like working class to, you know, to save us, whatever. I think that's, that, that's a big problem I have with lots of like modern, I guess, left-wing organizations in uh, kind of NGO sort of world sort of stuff. Um, 
but you know, I mean, I'm sure there's like interesting stuff happening in like America and so on. You know, you got like interesting migrant struggles and so on. And uh, and you know, there are still some cool like old, you know, like dark worker like trade unions and stuff who seem to be politically radical. Um, but I do think like for me that I guess this this real interest in Emmanuel's work is this idea. You know, it's this idea that we live in a world that's where the the just to put it really simply like the resources produced are very unequally divided between like some countries and the majority of countries right and the uh i mean roland expresses unequal exchange in this kind of simple way like unequal exchange is a theory of class struggle uh over the distribution of resources on a global scale but involving um involving the masses of one of some nations against the masses of other nations. This is how he sort of ex uh, expressed it. And, um, and this kind of idea that, well, yeah, if we were to have some kind of just distribution of global resources, uh, directing them towards regions that really desperately need development, you know, to, to stop like starvation and disease and to give people like a, a decent life where they can have some free time to relax, not just work all the time and so on. Um, this would involve, you know, redirecting resources away from, I guess, societies that consume uh, a lot today. And I'm sure that this wouldn't really be appreciated by many people, like living in, living in these high consumption societies, um, especially, I guess, you could say, like the middle classes, you know, petty bourgeoisie and so on, which occupy a really huge place in these societies, right? Like often when we talk about America or Australia, you know, I think, oh, you know, like the man, the working class masses, but like, you know, if you start thinking about the class division of these societies, really it's the, the petty bourgeoisie which occupy a, a really huge uh, role in these societies, right? Um, and I don't think it's that bad to say that, you know, as a Marxist or whatever, that, you know, these, these classes are, going, are not going to like, you know, some kind of so just, you know, communist transformation of the world. And then with the working classes, I think there is, you know, I mean, Marx also wrote about a labor aristocracy. And uh, I think there is an extent to which there is like quite a strong labor aristocracy in these, in these countries. And then, um, and then even in the working class in like America or, you know, Australia or other countries, which is, is doing badly today, you know, like it finds it difficult to pay its bills and so on. There's still this aspect that I think needs to be remembered where it's like often these people, they remember kind of the glory days of like, you know, of social democracy, you know, in the 20th century. And I think really like, I mean, I, yeah, I do genuinely believe that this is a reactionary vision, which involves like basically intensifying exploitation of other countries. And you can really, you know, we could talk about current events if, if you want, because it's really interesting seeing right now this kind of, this kind of push uh, in America and in Europe, this kind of Green New Deal and so on, kind of combining this, um, it's very interesting because it, it's kind of like, we yeah, was talking about this, this is really relevant. It's kind of like a combination of like social justice for the populations of these countries. And, you know, Biden's always talking about, you know, the working class, you know, it's, it's not doing well and so on in America. Uh, you know, jobs for them, employment for them, making, you know, like re renewable energy, you know, infrastructure and so on. And uh, combined with this kind of, you know, this kind of climate idea, and then also combined with this geopolitical thrust, which you get if you read like publications like Atlantic Council, where it's like, you know, this is a way for us to reduce our energy reliance on Russia and a way for us to uh, be less dependent on Chinese goods and to put like taxes on Chinese goods because they are ecologically, you know, unfriendly. They can't, it's hard for them to compete with our like, you know, high tech, ecologically friendly goods, right? 
And, and you can sort of see how this is, and also it also involves like, we'll also have to, you know, uh, increase our like, you know, trade cooperation, whatever, how, how they call it with countries like India, Ukraine, Mexico, like you know, basically pro-Western low-wage countries where we'll offshore most of the production. We'll try and, you know, not reshore, but like move what we had in China to India or to Mexico and to Ukraine and so on. Uh, and so we can continue the structure of unequal exchange, right? But uh, in, I guess, more comprador regimes that don't really try and increase their technological level or their wage level so much as, as China does. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you can, you can see stuff. And, and, and this seems to be pretty, I, I don't really know that much about American politics, honestly, but this seems to be pretty popular, really. Uh, I understand why, you know, you know, more employment, more jobs, um, more wages. So I guess that's how I'd look at it. Uh, I, I think people often sort of say that this third world is perspective, as it's called, it's like kind of pessimistic or somewhere. I, I don't think it is pessimistic, you know, like, I mean, it, I think it's like optimistic because it's looking at, you know, the, the vast majority of the world's population, right? I mean, if you look at the numbers or like what, what percent of world's population are considered high income, by the World Bank, it's sixteen percent of the world's population, right? So, uh, and then and then 80, 84, 85 percent. These are like middle low low income countries, right? And and which we could also call like you know semi uh, semi periphery and periphery countries, low wage low wage countries basically. And this perspective places hope in progressive revolutionary transformations in these countries, which is the majority of the world. Uh, and this doesn't like exclude. Uh, there being progressive movements in, you know, we can call the, you know, the high wage countries, but also it's also really important to have a look at these progressive movements in the high wage countries and have a look at how they're actually interacting with the rest of the world. And often it's like it's a bit more complicated, right? Often just kind of, so I guess that's how I'd sort of talk about the political implications of this. Yeah. And also just stress that Emmanuel was always really big about how his work he always returned to this theme of the superiority of planned economies compared to market economies or low-wage countries. So it's often forgotten. Well, just to pick up on what you said about Australia, which I, I found really fascinating uh, in the, the Communist Working Group Unequal Exchange manifesto that they wrote, they actually have a section in, in chapter three where they explain unequal exchange, where they talk about South Africa, uh, which I, I personally found really, really fascinating. And they were talking about uh, seemingly unequal exchange, even within a country, like the, the unequal exchange between uh, the black and white workers of South Africa, which um, it, it's hard to really compare that. But yeah, I mean, to make a comparison to Australia or to the US, which are other settler colonial nations. And I know Emmanuel wrote a lot about settler colonialism as well. It's pretty interesting stuff to read. Um, it's it's fascinating to see also on a on a national level with uh, a colonized and colonized colonizing population uh, that there's also like an unequal exchange based on wage levels uh, within a nation. So I think that's fascinating to to hear what you said about Australia and this like you know return to the glory days and to think about like when white South Africans talk about a return to the glory days it is good stuff. Um, that's the kind of thing they're they're mostly thinking about of, of continuing this unequal exchange but then to take it back as you're saying south africa is a semi-peripheral nation um compared to the us and to talk about like the green new deal for example i know that like 
there's been a lot more conversation recently about uh, there's a scholar who actually was here at Cornell briefly uh, named Max Agile, who wrote about the People's Green New Deal in comparison to the one that's been proposed uh, as one that takes anti-imperialism seriously and international trade more seriously uh, in, its, in its configurations of what this would look like. So I, I think that's a very interesting point to pick up on that people should definitely be making the critique that the Green New Deal as formulated, or a lot of climate plans, and in Europe too. I mean, Europe's a great example, being familiar with some of the moves towards green energy that countries like Germany have made, while not really doing anything about uh, their situation with respect to international trade, um, is pretty. It's pretty sad to watch, but it speaks to like Germany's continued position of uh, uh, being in the global north and being very comfortable in it. So. I wonder to extend the critique, I think everybody's pretty familiar with the, this as like yet again, another nail in the coffin for like social democracy, especially in, in Europe. But I wonder, you know, how it, how it relates to uh, what you're seeing in, in Europe um, with this development of, of France, Germany and the UK where, or, and, and, you know, the Nordic countries get brought up a lot as the, paradise social democracies where because of the past couple decades where the Soviet Union no longer exists, they've been able to really like descale their, their welfare state that they do have, which is the product of this unequal exchange. So now they're not even, you know, they still have unequal exchange built into the international trade system, but with neoliberalism as like an extra factor, they've been able to destroy the state uh, and all welfare services associated. So I wonder how also this like international trade uh, had like the opportunity, I guess like maybe you could make an argument about the Cold War and international trade where the Soviet Union existed as an alternative. Uh, whereas today they're, they're you know, as, as at least for the past couple of decades, there has been no alternative. Um, so international trade had to be established a certain way. The IMF and the World Bank exist to perpetuate this form of international trade. And I wonder, relating this to the concept of multipolarity that everybody's talking about today, about the changing structure of the world and the changing structure of, uh, of power uh, in, the, in, in the international world. So with a country like China, for example, it's hard to really make a... a, a a great assessment, but to think about like, how does this concept of unequal exchange get affected by a country like China that poses a slightly different uh, alternative system of development and alternative system of trade when it's doing deals in, in Africa, for example, I guess like what would be Emmanuel's perspective on that? Did he write it all on that subject? Because I guess that's more of a, an innovation in the modern world system. Uh, so yeah. Um, yeah, you talked first about like unequal exchange inside of a country. I guess there's the three things: unequal exchange inside of a country. Um, if we look at this modern develops in Europe, which I can like, which we'll talk about. Last things about China. Um, with the first thing, uh, yeah, I mean, Emmanuel has. Um, I, what I wanted to say about South Africa is that one of the reasons why I found Emmanuel's work really interesting is because like, as someone who lived in Australia for a bit of time and has also lived in other you know, various poor countries uh, as a child and as an adult, 
Um, I was really interested as to why Australia is like so rich, even though, you know, if you look at its exports, it just exports, like its main export is like iron and coal, right? And then like wheat, uh, which is pretty weird, you know, because most Marxist theories of unequal, of like underdevelopment and stuff, it's like, oh yeah, the poor countries, they export raw materials and, you know, blah, blah. But it's like, Australia is one of the richest countries in the world. It's like, you know, wages there are generally higher than in America, you know, I mean, uh, and, you know, it's just really weird, you know, if you go there, like the, the, the richest people are often like miners and they get like $100,000 a year or, uh, you know, just like tradespeople who get like $120,000 or whatever in like the first year after their apprenticeship and they can get like a million dollar house and a huge car. And so it's like, how does this work? Like what their work is based, like they're building houses, right? And, and that's cool. Like it's cool to build houses, but a person living in, in Ukraine uh, or, or wherever also building houses, but they get like $300 a month. So how does that work? Um, and then, yeah, Emmanuel has really interesting analysis of like this kind of divergence between among the different countries colonized by Britain. Cause it's really kind of an interesting, he says like, it's like a, it's like a scientific experiment uh, given to us, which is because the, the conditions are the same. It's the same colonizer, right? Um, but then you have these really drastically different outcomes between say like, you know, South Africa, other, African colonies of England, uh, and then Australia and New Zealand, and also America, obviously. How, how we have this huge divergence? Then Emmanuel's basic answer is that uh, in some countries, you had the victory of the white settler class uh, in Australia and New Zealand, right? Uh, in Australia and New Zealand and America, you had the victory of the white settler class, and their interest was to exterminate the natives totally uh, and kill all of them. Uh, and the, the ones that remain, don't let them work because they might compete with whites for jobs and for wages, and then have this kind of like settler paradise for the remaining whites with, you know, really hardcore protectionism, protecting white jobs and so on, and encouraging exports and um, kind of like, I mean, like a, a, fat, a fat, you know, it's very similar basically to what to fascist state in Germany and so on, where, you know, everything for the good of the, the, the Vulcans and so on. Um, and, uh, and in, this, in these conditions, you have constantly rising wages. Rising wages means that there's more, it's a huge consumer market, capital's, capital comes, capital invests. And the other big thing is that I haven't talked about this so much, but when you have rising wages, this also encourages the use of more capital intensive technology. There's, lots of been, there's been lots of great studies of this as well. For instance, there's, there's, there's the, about the, even the industrialization of England. Uh, there's a really interesting book about this. Uh, what's the name of this book again? Uh, the British Industrial Revolution in Global Perspective by Alan, a uh, really interesting study of how like high wages in his, in his, in his uh, perspective contributed, well, a really important factor basically in the industrialization of England. And there's also a really similar series to this about, about America, it's been written about a lot, about how high wages encourage the use of more advanced technology, which in turn encouraged, because basically if you have high wages, you need to make up with this somehow. Otherwise you're going to be, your products will be uncompetitive. So you need to have, to use less labor through more tech, technologically advanced means of production and so on. And you had this happen in Australia and South Africa, or not, not South Africa. In South Africa, the thing is, is that they didn't kill all of the, the natives uh, for a variety of reasons. Maybe there were, there were too many of them. They were also very like, you know, quite mil militarily uh, strong and so on. And then you had this condition where the majority of the population was low wage. So then you, there's, there's not much stimulus for investment, right? And then uh, there's not much stimulus either for technological advancement because you can just use low wage labor. You don't have to use high technology. 
so I found this, and now also, of course, you know, and then in the other uh, African colonies of England, there was, you know, very minimal settler population. And uh, I, I found this explanation really interesting because it, it's, it's very like logical. Um, and it also takes, it, it, it has also has a large emphasis, I guess, on, on, on class conflict. Uh, in this interesting kind of a historical materialist perspective, I found instead of kind of, kind of a weird metaphysical reference to, you know, like raw materials and stuff, which doesn't really make much sense. Um, that's what I'd say about that. Um, and then obviously, yeah, I mean, inside of a country, I mean, if you have, if one population has much higher wages, uh, right. I mean, you, you still need, you know, and this, I think this often happened in, in South Africa where you'd have, you know, like whites doing, you know, some aspect of like they, they occupied some sectors. Right. And then other sectors were totally occupied by blacks and uh, they got paid lower wages. And then that way you're able to, like, I guess, compensate the l less competitive, the, the, the impacts and competitiveness by having high wages, by employing, you know, uh, Af like native Africans in the uh, some sections of the production process and so on. So it's, it's, it's similar, I guess, to unequal exchange on an international level. But on the unequal exchange, I guess, on the international level, it's also you can explain as well how like if you have a high wage economy, then you have also more money for taxes, you can have a better military, you can have more social spending and so on. So it's kind of, it's, it, I guess it's a bit different between the within nation and the international level. So that's about that. And then about, about Europe, uh, yeah, this is a topic that I'm really, I guess, I mean, for me, I'm really, I've like researched a fair bit about, I guess, Ukra Ukraine's economic relations with the EU. Um, and that's a really interesting one because, you know, they got a, they're not in the EU, uh, but they have this uh, trade, trade association agreement uh, with the EU that was signed in 2016. And uh, the, the way this works basically is that um, Ukraine has a set of all these different commodities that they're able to export to the EU for less tariffs than before, but there's a set amount there's, there's only so much they can export each year of these things. And then, and then it's, if they export more, export more than this, then it's back to the ordinary tariffs. And they always export more. So it doesn't really actually impact that much the uh, helping them export there. And then Europe is able to basically export most things to Ukraine. It's resulted in obviously industrialization. But then the interesting thing is that one of the big reasons why Ukrainian exporters haven't been able to uh, export into the EU is because of all of these uh, restrictions about e ecological standards and so on, and also consumer standards and so on in the EU. And, uh, you know, th th this require you know, Ukraine's industry is quite old, and this requires a lot of modernization to make it, uh, you know, with, with lots of its main exports like steel and so on, to make it ecologically, you know, friendly and so on. This requires huge investments, huge money, and the EU is not, doesn't do that. <laughs> That's not what they do. Uh, and this, this has become even much worse with this new, what's it like, the new carbon tax, I forgot what it's called. There's like, yeah, everyone knows this carbon tax. It's really famous. Uh, that last year, and, and there have been calculations about the impact this, this is going to have on Ukrainian economy. It's huge. Uh, I think it was, I mean, I can't remember the figures right now, but was, the people are writing about it a lot in the, I guess, the industrial community in, uh, in Ukraine. And this, this, the problem is, is that, you know, Europe doesn't give any assistance, right, for, for this. So it ends up just resulting in just further deindustrializing Ukraine. All of, you know, these end prices go bankrupt. They, they can't pay for this. Um, and then in turn, this free, frees up more labor uh, in Ukraine, unemployed, which go have to work in Poland. Um, it's like there's been data from the um, Polish Central Bank that Ukrainian uh, labor migrants uh, working in Poland 
uh, were responsible for 12% of Polish GDP growth over the past six years, which is huge. Uh, and it's also, you know, it's really, I think you can really get a, um, unequal exchange perspective has really helped me understand the geopolitics of the region, you know, and you have the sort of, for instance, Poland is an economy where wages have been increasing since about 2008. Uh, and they have been breaking into more and more technologically advanced sectors where they're competing with other high wage nations. But then obviously this creates um, pressure on the competitiveness, right? Because they, they, they specialized in being kind of the China of Europe that was, you know, supplying, you know, using low wage labor of these goods. So they have to compensate this somehow. And they've done this by importing Ukrainians, right? And, and then you can sort of, it's interesting how it was Polish diplomats who were the first to go to the Maidan, you know, protest movement in, in Ukraine, and they were the first to go and support it and so on and so on, because this was calling for the liberalization of Ukraine and this, this trade agreement, which was obviously going to be horrible for Ukraine and result in huge deindustrialization, everyone moving to Poland. And that's what happened, right? You have like 4 million, I mean, before the war, you had like three to 4 million Ukrainian migrant workers there, if you include like the illegal workers and so on. Um, so that's really, that, that's, that's the stuff I think about a lot, I guess, in terms of in Europe. I, I, I know less about the Scandinavian countries. Uh, I know people often bring them up as this, you know, this, this, this awesome thing. Uh, you know, maybe it is awesome. I, I don't know. I don't know much about them. But I, I mean, like, I guess, like, again, like the core of Emmanuel's work is like, look, you have this, you have a set amount of global, you know, production, right? The set amount, if it, it can't just, it, it can't just be increased willy-nilly. You have a set amount and then it's distributed among every country. Right, and then the way this is distributed is when you have these, um, if if you have higher money wages, you can buy more of this global product. And um, the way it is now is that some countries appropriate more of it, right, for essentially spurious like uh, reasons. And this is like unjust, basically. And that, and 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 he has some really interesting uh, illustrations of this, in terms of like. If we divided up, I think you were talking about this as well in this, this book, of, which is a great book, by the way, the one you mentioned, I really, I really like that book. Uh, but if you divide it up, uh, if you equalize wages, I think Emmanuel's example is only in the OECD. What, what, happened, what would happen if you equalized all wages to US levels in the OECD countries, not, not even ex including Turkey. This is like basically, basically EU countries. Emmanuel was writing this in like the 80s, I think, uh, or late 70s. And basically the result would be uh, if everyone, if all the population of these countries had U.S. wages, you would have a negative rate of profit. Like their their wages would actually like and this is obviously unsustainable. Like there's there'd be no there'd be no room left for profit even less. So, um, you know, wages are wages. This is a claim to social production, right? That allows you to consume part of this. And you have this situation where some consume more than is possible if everyone wants to have the same claim. So, I mean, clearly this is like, this is unjust, you know? And then about China, um, it, it's, yeah, it's a complicated topic. I, I don't really know how, what exactly to say. Um, it's, I think it's really, it's, yeah, it's really complicated. I think it really depends on the country we're talking about, you know, like uh, about China's role in this economy. And, you know, it, 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 it can be positive, it can be, less positive. Often it's also a question of like what the local government does in terms of, uh, you know, I guess like directing investments towards the most like rational place they should go. If the local government does nothing, then, you know, I mean, Chinese like businessmen uh, will like, you know, do what's in their interest and it's kind of, you know, uh, and this is, isn't always in the interest of the, you know, the, I guess the mass of the local nation. But, you know, I mean, I, I think it's, 
it really i think it depends and um i think generally you know it's it's good when there there is kind of open openness towards more trade with low-wage nations because like one of the big problems really is that it's it's not even so much that you know there's often this idea that you know imperialism is when like the countries of the first world they're like they're hungering for more country for more poor countries to invest in and exploit them but it's not only the case i mean often the big problem is like with ukraine for instance it's just that they're locked into these trading arrangements where the poor country has no ability to even export to the, to the rich country and there's not even that many there's not even that many investments by the eu in ukraine um so you know if china is willing to invest and to trade more often they're, they're talking about in africa about opening up chinese agricultural market to African exporters and to helping with agricultural modernization in Africa. I mean, that's good, you know, I mean, but I think it really, it really does depend though on how the local government uses this to their advantage. I think uh, that's a really huge factor, I think. Yeah, that, that's a pretty good, concise explanation of, of all three parts of that question. Um, I think something, if you want to talk about it a little briefly, we can talk about how the unequal exchange theory kind of continuing on this note of the way it is operating in the world today, but also historic, for historical theoretical context, how it has been squared with other theories of imperialism. And also to say, as you were saying, that there's Wallerstein has his own theory of unequal exchange. Samir Amin has a theory that he formulated as well. So what's kind of the difference? What sets Emmanuel's theory apart from from other interpretations of it, um, and and how does it fit into the context of something like world systems theory, or does it challenge some of the suppositions of of something like world systems theory or the core periphery model? Because as you're saying to it, it seems like even within this idea of like the global north as kind of a unit, there is unequal exchange too between uh, a core like Western Europe and a periphery like Eastern Europe. So I wonder how this kind of relates to other theories of imperialism. Um, yeah. Yeah, um, well, but the last thing, I mean, I guess I, I wouldn't say that like Eastern Europe is part of the core. I think uh, I think it's like, for me, I'd say that like, I mean, a country like Ukraine is like peripheral. I mean, it's got the same GDP per capita as like Philippines, right? I mean, uh, and then it's gonna be much worse in the, in the years to come. But, um, and then you got countries like I guess like Romania or Poland, which kind of kind of semi-peripheral, I suppose right. you say. And then I, I'd I'd call like the countries of, of West Europe like the core core countries, yeah. sure, like France and Germany. But anyway, um, and then how Emmanuel's theory is different to other theories. I mean, it always really turns around this con this idea of like productivity. Uh, this this is the main uh, thing that it turns around. Amin tries to like reintroduce productivity into this conception of unequal exchange. But I mean, like. Yeah, it's a, just a different concept. It's just a really different concept to Emmanuel's. Um, Emmanuel's concept is about how, you know, I mean, he, 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 the other thing is that Emmanuel starts off with this, this idea is that you can't really compare uh, productivity between sectors in, in some sort of way that like, you know, the, the pen manufacturers are more productive than the, you know, the, uh, the corn producers. And this is why the pen manufacturers should get more higher wages. It just, it doesn't really make much sense. You can talk about inside of a sector, productivity differences. And, you know, if one pen producer is more productive than the other pen producer, then the first pen producer will drive the other one out of, out of the market. And, it, and then the other ones will 
you know, correspondingly, like you know, if they don't even out of market, I mean, they'll have low. It would make sense to have lower wages, right? This, this, this makes sense. But in between sectors, then they're not they're not competing with each other. So it, it's 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 hard to. And Amon tries to sort of talk about intersectoral in comparing productivity between sectors. I I, I don't really like it. It, it gets. It, I'm not really sure what he's trying to say with that often. Um, with Emmanuel, with like productivity, I mean, he does talk about productivity a lot, as I was talking about. Uh, he focuses on how wage increases have this effect of increasing, forcing the country to specialize, to increase productivity, to compete with other countries, and also uh, to specialize in sectors where there are no low-wage countries competing with them, right? You can also see this with the Green New Deal, this kind of attempt to, kind of, I mean, basically create new sectors, which are really technologically advanced, which are difficult for low-wage countries to enter into due to the skill requirements, the cost of, you know, of totally modernizing all of the existing sort of uh, productive assets and so on. And then if you don't compete with low-wage nations, but you're selling stuff which has demand on the world market, you can keep your high wages, right? It, it doesn't matter what, what you know, other countries are doing with low wages if they're, if they're, if they're not competing with you. Um, and then just... Yeah, I think the difference, and if we talk about how does Emmanuel's work compare with other other stuff, I mean, honestly, it's difficult. I mean, honestly, I get the feeling where like people are so often commentating on Emmanuel, but they're they're really not really commentating on him. They just want to present their own theory of something else, and they they don't. And I mean, that's fine, but they often present it as this kind of like refutation of Emmanuel's theory. But it's not. It's just like it's just talking about something else, and and they. They don't really deal with Emmanuel's theory. I mean, it's frustrating. You know, I, I really like this guy. I really like his work. But when you read commentary on it, it's often like, it's just not honestly engaging with his work. I mean, I really like this. I mean, we should, I'm sure you'll have like the link to this Roland guy's work because his work is great on Emmanuel. He actually tries to honestly approach his work and give a commentary on it. And he compares it as well to Diff. He has a really good like comparison of it to Amin's theory and Wallerstein. You can, you can check it all out. Um, the thing with the comparison between like, you know, you got like world systems analysis, dependency theory, Emmanuel's work, is that they're really they're operating on different, uh, I don't know, I mean, like they're, they're, they have very different approaches. Like Emmanuel is quite formal and he also has like statistical data to back up his stuff about like about wage differences. And also he talks about how like he has a look at different rates of profit in different countries to back up his claim that there's like general equalization, equalization between countries and so on. Um, but he's not like, he's not, he, he, you know, he has some comments as well about historical developments in different countries, but the main thrust of his work is this kind of, I guess, this theoretical explanation of this and the, the effects this has on economic development. Someone like Wallerstein, he doesn't, I mean, like Wallerstein's interesting, but he has no theory, right? I mean, that's what everyone always says about him, and it's true. I mean, he, he has this whole like interesting analysis of European world history, but like, you know, you're going to look for a definition of unequal exchange like in vain in his work. I mean, he has it in some like books, but it, it's very like very general. It's kind of some kind of definitions like, you know, states. He has a big role of states there, which is, you know, I mean, that, that's fine. I mean, you, you, can, you can have a big role of states in Emmanuel's theory as well. It's not like irreconcilable, but it's just he doesn't really have much of a substantive, I guess, theory of what he's talking about with unequal exchange. Emmanuel does. Um, and then in other theory, you know, with dependency theory, which is often kind of lumped together with this. I mean, Emmanuel had lots of, he had lots of hate for dependency theory. He really didn't like it. He didn't like this term dependency. He didn't like this idea that underdevelopment is caused by like, you know, evil monopoly capitalists and stuff. He had lots of critique for this idea. Because, you know, the, I guess the, the core idea of dependency theory is that 
underdevelopment is caused by you know bad investors who come and invest and mess everything up. But then Manuel's thing is like, look, if you look at actual poor countries, there's like there's a shortage of investment, there's a shortage of foreign investment, and they're all like you know falling over each other to try and actually attract foreign investment uh, because they have like you know shortage of technology, domestic technology. So it's kind of the dependency theory perspective is often really, I mean, you know, maybe a caricature of it, but I mean, still, I mean, I think often it's kind of inadequate to really deal with lots of the problems that poor countries face. There are some good stuff, there's some good stuff in there as well, but um, Emmanuel had some, you know, kind of, I guess, arguments with uh, the, the very classic dependency theory guy, Andre Gunder Frank, actually about also this topic of the, the different divergent uh, development, you know, stories of the English colonies. Um, and Gunther Frank tried to have some of this critique of unequal exchange. I mean, Gunther Frank said, like, I, I don't care about this, you know, about, about the differences in trade prices and stuff. He said, like, it's not, it's not relevant. He didn't really have an explanation of why it's not relevant. But Emmanuel's thing is like, look, I mean, this is, this is the money you get for your export. This is what you depend on as a country. I mean, of course it matters, but, you know. Um, so yeah, if, 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 if that's sort of, I mean, I, I think it's definitely really productive to read about other, uh, you know, well, just analysis and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I personally, I also find it really interesting to read just, you know, economic history of just separate different countries. If, uh, if, it, if it's good, you know, it, it doesn't have to be in a, in a particular uh, theoretical framework, but if it's really like carefully anal analyzed it, I think often you can find like really, you know, big, uh, you know, ways in which Emmanuel's theory allows you to understand this. Uh, and that's just because I think that Emmanuel's theory is like a really great way of explaining reality in our world. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a really good answer to explain kind of like how to situate the theory uh, within the context of other imperialist studies. I think the last thing to, I guess, talk about would be this, like if we could go more into this point on productivity, because the Working group also talks about it briefly um, and talks about like, this has, this has been one of the critiques made. Uh, productivity and wages, it's like page 71 on, on the text. They, they talk about, um, this is one of the most popular explanations of the international difference in wages is just to say, it's based on a difference in productivity. Um, and, then, and then they talk about the claim made by some to say, that workers in imperialist countries are actually more exploited than the proletariat in the third world because they work at a higher level of productivity. When I, when I read this, it reminded me of, I guess, more orthodox interpretations of, of Marx's theory to suggest that like workers in the global north, more developed capitalist countries are you know, already at a higher level of, uh, of capitalism and are there, therefore more closer to some revolutionary potential so, you know, they've been uh, reduced down to uh, like just their maximum level of productivity, whereas capital accumulation and the stages of capital development are still ongoing in uh, developing nations or in the third world. But Emmanuel's critique seems like a very, seems like a rupture even in that, that very orthodox reading of Marx that says the first world workers are further down the, the, the path of uh, of capitalism and therefore closer towards something new. And he seems to be saying there is there is some mass level of like, uh, when it's taken into a global context and taken out of just a national context, uh, the workers of, of the first world are, it's not just that they like are 
at a higher level of development or, or whatever, it's that they now rely on uh, this exploitation uh, of the, the global south. So I wonder how, how does that square with, as we've been talking about, like this idea of the labor aristocracy and the, the theory of revolution in this and in Marx's work, um, kind of not necessarily contradicting, but kind of like a more orthodox reading is saying, Marx believes so, so and so like Western Europe will be the first to have socialism because they uh, came to capitalism first or something like that. Like how does this pose a very strong challenge to that idea? Uh, so yeah, about productivity, um, basically, I mean, Emmanuel's theory, as we said, like, you know, high wages encourage more productivity, which is good for them, but ultimately, uh, you know, and, and there's other, like, there's also more modern theorists that have also talked about this, you know, like, you know, Zach Cope and uh, Timothy Kerswell also has written some cool stuff about this, about, like, well, if you look at the actual uh, productivity today between, like, low-wage countries and high-wage countries, often there's little difference, often they're using, like, uh, especially in the, like, in the really competitive export sectors, like, they're often using pretty similar techniques, um, especially if, you know, and but, the, but there's still really this huge wage differences still. So, I mean, clearly, like, it's not really so simple as this kind of idea where it's like, you know, productivity determines wage levels and so on. Um, and I think it's much more, it, make, it just makes a lot more sense, like, intuitively, if you think about it in terms of, you know, wages, these are claims to a social product. There's a determined, there's, a, there's one cake, right? And you can divide it up how you like. Uh, but if one party has a large slice, and the other party tries to increase its slice, it's going to infringe on the other slice, right? Uh, and especially in a, in, a, in a situation, of course, the capitalists also have their claims, but they are, you know, unwilling, they are unwilling to, you know, give up their, uh, their you know, their claims on the cake. Uh, and, you know, it's always socially much easier to just like, instead of having some kind of class war against the capitalists, I mean, if you're like sort of a strong imperialist nation, to just, you know, take from a different country, right? Because, you know, it, it, people don't hear about it. They're not your neighbors. It doesn't really matter. Um, and then with, with productivity, so like, you know, and then you can also see today where you have China competing against, uh, you know, the US and EU and so on. And they're using very advanced productive techniques often. Like, I mean, they're, they're really approaching the productivity level of, uh, of the EU and the, and the US, exceeding it in some sectors. Uh, but they still have lower wage levels. Um, so, yeah, it's, I mean, I, I think it's, it's often people try to justify this whole productivity claim through some kind of, you know, like, you know, erudite, like, you know, theoretical construction. But I mean, I, I don't really find it very convincing if you just look at, I don't know, I mean, reality, if you look at what's happening, it just doesn't really make much sense. Uh, and, and just again, I mean, like, if you think, if you want to be like a, a sort of classical Marxist about it, right, if you have higher productivity, this means more unemployment because workers are going unemployed because the machines have replaced them. And then this makes more competition on the labor market. And this, and this lowest wage. Um, so that's, yeah, I mean, that's what, I, and then also, I mean, the other, the other thing is, is that like, you know, um, if you're talking about competition, because the, the big thing to remember is that Emmanuel's theory, he stresses this explicitly, it's about intersectoral competition, right? Where you have high wage countries specialize in one sector and low wages in other sectors, right? And this is like generally, gen, generally what happens, right? He, and sometimes it's a bit, uh, mask because you know he's like oh you know I mean Germany and Mexico are both making cars but then it, it, it's not really so simple because I mean Germany is is involved in in uh, the 
parts of the production chain, which are the, the more, you know, it's a different sector. They're all like making cars, but Germany is making the most difficult parts of the car, the most technologically complex parts of the car. And then Mexico will be, or, they're making, or they'll be making like, I don't know, luxury cars or something. And then Mexico will be making uh, cheaper cars or cheaper sections of the car um, often because uh, it's, the, it's difficult to break into these high school sections that uh, sectors that Germany is specialized in. Um, and uh, so in this way, that, but even if they are, comp and, but the thing is, if they are competing in the exact same sectors, you can have higher tech, you know, more productive, you know, technology to compensate for this uh, wage gap. But there's only so much, like you can't just constantly invent new technology, right? There, there, there's, a, there's a given limit. Uh, and also in terms of just costs, I mean, there's a certain extent to which it, uh, using the, the, maybe the, 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 the newest technology uh, in order to outcompete lower wage producers, it might just end up being, you know, um, inefficient from a capitalist perspective in terms of the, the profit you can get in this sector compared to other sectors. So it might just be better to move to a different sector. Um, yeah, I mean, off, and often this whole discussion about productivity, it's some kind of weird, like, I don't know, moral sort of thing. And it's, anyway, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think like, I think it's pretty clear that, you know, you have like, revolutionary mass movements revolutionary organizations that uh the there's more reason for people to want like fundamental changes in society that will involve like a very difficult revolutionary process that will you know involve sort of civil wars and destruction and stuff and that's in places where there are like you know people are struggling to survive struggling to find a job struggling to be employed and dying of sort of preventable diseases often and so on and, uh, you, you can also talk, there's also some theories about how, like, you know, often it's in semi-peripheral countries where there's very, like, strong, I guess, revolutionary potential because, I guess, an example of this is, to some extent, like, I mean, Tsarist China, Tsarist Russia, where you had this period of, like, rapid industrial growth, but wages were still very low. And then you had this kind of, like, very well-organized working class due to the conditions of the, you know, uh, huge, you know, classic like factory conditions where there was very like strong incentive to organize and so on, but wages were still low or even decreasing according to many statistics. Um, and then you also had this middle class that was disenchanted with, you know, didn't really have much, there wasn't that much opportunity for it often in this new society. And then you have this revolution, so that kind of that makes sense a bit. But, you know, there's also examples of revolutions happening in very like peripheral countries like China, obviously, where there wasn't some kind of, you know, industrial development that was you know making things go and then stopped so i mean uh but about the core i mean yeah i mean there haven't there haven't been any you know we can say like um uh, radical like socialist transformations in first world countries and if you look at the social democratic sort of countries i mean they are like you know dependent on imports from low-wage countries and so you can sort of have this conception of how this is you know it's uh, taking this imperialist position in the world economy based on, you know, world production. So, yeah, I guess that's. Yeah, so uh, I don't really have any more questions, but I'm kind of wondering if there's anything else with the theory that really needs to be understood to understand it well. Um, and if not, then this was a great conversation. I, I really enjoyed it. But yeah, any, any last things that like really need to be touched on to understand it well? Well, I mean, like, I guess one thing is that there, there is like an element of, of the state 
in in sort of making sure that uh, in uh, I guess pushing a country towards a high wage state. It, it's not like a simple. It's, it's not like you know Emmanuel's theory. He he does think that I guess imperialism is like uh, this is not normal capitalism. He does think that like uh, that this is like normal capitalism is just where every country is poor, right? And uh, but I guess like one kind of powerful thing of this is when you have like this kind of aberrant, like weird capitalism where some countries are rich and some are poor, most are poor. Uh, this is also like a really, really powerful ideological justification for capitalism because then, you know, people can say like, oh, you know, like we're poor, sure, but we can be like Germany someday. So we got to work, right? And capitalism is fine. And uh, this is really like a huge thing in Eastern Europe as well, where like, in a, in a, to a huge extent, like the whole like I don't know fall of the socialist bloc, it was more it was less about living in a capitalist world and more about living like in the West and like and the West was capitalist, so we've got to be capitalist. Um, so anyway, but um, and um, yeah, I mean the state plays a, an important role in terms of you know protectionism, um, in terms of. I guess there's, there's society-wide interests of the nation because cap, the capital by itself it doesn't care about the working class, right? I mean, it's not. It's not. I mean, there are some like very like you know, you know, Ford or something cared care to an extent about the what you know to have more like mass market and stuff. But most capitalists don't care, and uh, it's really the state that does step in uh, in terms and also in terms of military might and in terms of. Uh, to like you know enslave some other nations to make them an easy market or you know to, and so on. So yeah, it is important to stress this, I think. Um, and I, I find it really really powerful this idea of how uh, this kind of imperialist world it creates its own ideology, which is very important for the functioning of capitalism itself. Uh, that without it, you know, if every country was just poor, a poor capitalist country, you know, there'd be no real justification for capitalism, right? But if, if, if every country lived like in, I don't know, uh, like, like, like even in, in Portugal or something, it just, it, it, there's not really much point to it. But if we have some Germanys or something, then it's really cool, you know, so, yeah. Well, thanks so much for, for taking the time uh, to talk to me. And, and I, I learned a lot. I definitely have more reading to do and more questions to ask in the future. So we can potentially do like a follow follow up one, go more in depth on an unequal exchange or any other theory that you want to talk about. Um, so yeah, but anytime you so you have me on Twitter and I'm in the Discord now too. But anytime you want to reach out and and talk about really anything, I'm just happy. we're just getting started. So awesome, yeah. podcast out and and yeah, just feel free to let me know. But it was you really cleared up a lot for me. So I'm I'm gonna also send this to everybody in the in the reading group and hopefully we'll like continue with our conversations about unequal exchange and have more clarity on it. Great, thanks so much. Thanks so much Joseph for inviting me. Yeah. It's been super interesting. I'm really, it's always, I, I love talking about this. So thanks a lot awesome. for inviting me. Cool. Have a good one. Yeah, well, I'll stay in touch and uh, I'll, I'll send it to you when it's uploaded. Great, great, yeah, awesome. See you, man. All right.